Hey, Crime Salad listeners, welcome back to another episode of Crime Salad. I'm your host, Ashley. And I'm Ricky. And we're here with part two of The Vanishings. This is a good case. It is. And it's one I've always wanted to cover. So if you would love to learn more about this case, be sure to check out the books. There's tons of books. Just to name a few, there's one called The Lost Girls by John Glatt. Another one written by Amanda Berry and Gina Jesus called Hope. And two books called Finding Me and Life After Darkness were written by the victim, Michelle Knight. So definitely check those books out. There's also one more called Captive, the story of the Cleveland Abductions by Alan Hall. Also, check out our new patrons. We have three lovely patrons this week. We have Tracy, Anita, A. Perry. Thank you guys so much for your support. We really appreciate it. I appreciate it more. All right. Well, let's jump into this week's episode. Ariel Castro had three captives in his house of horrors at 2077 Seymour Drive. It was always his plan to have more than one captive, and he would tell Michelle Knight in the early days of her abduction that once he had two more captives, he would allow her to go home. He would occasionally mention that he wished he had been able to kidnap Elizabeth Smart or John Benet Ramsey because they were his ideal type. Of course we know he eventually did take in two more captives, and we also know he never allowed any of them to go home. Instead, he compartmentalized their purposes and their treatment. Michelle Knight was never a girl he planned to take the way he planned to take Amanda and Gina. She was a spur-of-the-moment opportunity he seized upon. As a result, he held the most contempt for Michelle because she wasn't his ideal type. Consequently, he saved his most aberrant and deviant desires for her. Because to him, she just didn't matter. He rated the girls with hierarchy, and since no one was looking for Michelle, no one valued Michelle. He treated her with disdain. He also couldn't break Michelle. She had an iron will and was the least submissive. She never leaned into her captivity to make her life easier. She always fought back which was something she later learned that he enjoyed. According to her book entitled Finding Me, A Decade of Darkness and a Life Reclaimed, she never gave up hope. She would pray daily that God would magically unlock her chains and set her free. She would tell Castro that he didn't have to keep them captive and he can go and get help and she would support him. She encouraged him to talk to his pastor at church about what he called his sexual problem. He told the girls that he was a victim too, as if that explained why he held them hostage or would make them understand the purpose of their captivity. Michelle explained how he would make her watch a show on sexual addictions with him and then force her to act each of them out. He always saved the most abusive acts of depravity just for her. He would often choke her during sexual assaults or use an extension cord to strangle her until she passed out only to revive her and assault her all over again. She had so much semen in her hair that she had to cut it all off with a pair of doll scissors. For the first year of her captivity, she wasn't allowed to wear any clothing. Castro had numerous sex and BDSM toys he would use to punish her. 
His favorite was a long leather whip he would use on her legs and body when she didn't do something the way he wanted. But that doesn't mean he wasn't equally vicious in other ways to the other two captives. From Michelle's perspective, he treated Amanda Berry the best between the three of them and eventually referred to her as his wife. Amanda learned early on that he was a sadist and enjoyed his assaults for a longer period of time when she screamed or fought back. So she stopped fighting back, but her compliance was not the same as her submission. She did what she had to do to stay alive. In addition to his deviant sexual demands, he also liked to play mind games with the girls who eventually grew into women peepholes in their rooms and would pretend to leave and then watch them to see if they would try to escape. Sometimes he would unchain them and leave the house, only to quietly double back and see if they opened their doors. If they did, he would severely beat them until they couldn't move for days. Amanda was allowed her own room and the bigger room at that. However, there was a hole in the bottom of the wall that went to the room that would eventually hold both Gina and Michelle. Despite being in two different rooms, all three women were often chained together. The chains would go through the wall and around their legs so they couldn't reach anything except their makeshift bathroom. The chains were short enough to prevent them from reaching the boarded up windows or their locked doors. He would also punish them with extreme cold and extreme hot temperatures. In the winter, he would place Michelle in the basement where she was freezing. And in the summer for punishment, he would chain her in the sweltering attic. He also starved the women, only feeding them once a day and usually something from McDonald's. As a result, the women were severely underweight and emaciated. This may have been what prevented them from getting pregnant for so long. Despite their grave physical condition, he did impregnate Michelle Knight at least five times. Each time he discovered she was pregnant, he would starve her for weeks, punch her and kick her in the stomach and hit her with a weighted dumbbell until her body expelled the fetus. On at least two occasions, she was far enough along that there was a fetus that needed to be disposed of by Castro, who callously placed it in the trash. Sometimes Castro would even go to the vigils and in an act of abject cruelty would comfort the De Jesus family. He even brought home a flyer touched by Gina's mom and allowed Gina to keep it as an act of benevolence. Whenever the girls were featured on shows such as America's Most Wanted or Montel Williams, he would allow the women to watch their family members cry for them. Then he would celebrate their abduction dates with a cake, which was a rare occasion where he would allow the three women to be together. But he would never allow them to be friends. There were three of them and one of him. He made sure that they concentrated on their hatred on one another. It was just another way to control them and keep them from combining their efforts to escape. He would tell Gina and Michelle that they had to do things that Amanda refused to do. This would upset the girls and make them angry that Amanda had the choice to decline his more perverse sexual acts, a choice that was never given to them. This served to foster resentment between the women 
However, there were many times of empathy when they did try to comfort each other during more difficult times. Like when Castro allowed Amanda Berry to watch her mother on the Montel Williams show. Williams had a psychic on who told Luana Berry that Amanda was somewhere underwater and she wouldn't see her until the afterlife. This absolutely destroyed Luana Berry. That is when she stopped buying Amanda birthday presents and Christmas presents and gave away Amanda's computer. Within a year, she died of heart failure. Amanda's sister said that their mother died of a broken heart when she lost hope for ever finding Amanda. This is the same year that Amanda Berry got pregnant. Unlike his home remedy abortion tactics he used on Michelle, he allowed Amanda to remain pregnant. In fact, he doted on her like a normal expectant father. As she got closer to the time of birth, he bought a small child's pool for her to give birth in. He bought a book on home births, and when Amanda went into labor, he sat in the corner reading the book while he demanded Michelle Knight deliver the baby. He told her if anything happened to Amanda's baby, he would kill her. This is especially cruel, given the way that he forced her to miscarry her many pregnancies. Michelle gave emergency medical care to the baby who was born blue and not breathing, and eventually Jocelyn Jade Berry cried. Castro suggested leaving the baby at a church, but to his surprise, Amanda begged to keep the baby and shockingly, he allowed it. But he wouldn't buy any clothing or diapers for the little girl. He didn't want anyone to know that he had a baby at his house. He forced the women to make baby clothes and diapers out of old shirts and gave Gina and Michelle the job of washing the diapers by hand. This new life in the house actually brought hope and camaraderie to the women. When Castro allowed Amanda to keep her baby, he set his own fate. The baby gave all three of them something to fight for. As Jocelyn grew and began talking, he made her call all of the women by a fake name. She called Gina Chelsea, and she called Michelle Juju. As she aged, Castro began taking her places. He would take her to his mother's house, the park, church, and sometimes the store. He would tell people she was his girlfriend's daughter. Because of Jocelyn, Castro was eventually forced to begin unchaining the women. Jocelyn began noticing and commenting on the chains and locked doors. At first, Amanda called them bracelets, but Jocelyn knew the bracelets prevented her mother from going downstairs with her. Even with this extra freedom, Castro still kept the downstairs locked up tight. There were bars on the windows, and the front doors were always chained with padlocks. It was also rigged with several different types of alarms. Castro had placed round surveillance mirrors in the corners of each room, so there were no blind spots. Even with the chains removed, the women were too scared to ever go downstairs without Castro's permission and watchful eye. That all changed on the morning of May 6, 2013. 
that morning, Jocelyn went into her mother's room and told her that Castro was gone and that he had forgotten to lock the girls' bedrooms. Fearing it was just another one of Castro's mind games, she sent Jocelyn back down to make sure that he wasn't home. Jocelyn came back up to her mother's room and told her that Castro's blue car was gone. By this time, Jocelyn was six years old and Amanda was ready to risk it all trying to give her daughter a chance at freedom. She cautiously went downstairs to see for herself that Castro was gone. That's when she noticed that he had also forgot to lock the front door. She carefully opened the door, however, the sturdy storm door was still padlocked. Amanda could only open it enough to get one hand out. She noticed some neighbors across the street, and she bravely began screaming. She waved her arm and screamed that she was kidnapped and trapped in the house. That's when one of Castro's neighbors began walking towards the screaming woman. At the same time, Castro's next-door neighbor, Charles Ramsey, also started heading over to Castro's front door. Ramsey thought it was just another domestic disturbance, but he did try to help Amanda open the door. When he realized that it was padlocked, he began kicking out the bottom of the door and instructed her to kick from her side too. That is when the bottom panel finally gave way and he told Amanda it was now big enough for her to crawl through. To his amazement, a little girl crawled out too. Amanda, holding her daughter, ran across the street and used the neighbor's phone to call 911. While Amanda and Jocelyn were escaping, Michelle and Gina were both upstairs hiding in their room. They were worried that this was another trick and that Castro was just waiting to catch Amanda and punish her. When police finally opened the door, Michelle Knight ran into the officer's arms shouting, You saved us! You saved us! At first, the officers thought Michelle was another child. She was only four foot six and weighed only 70 pounds. Police escorted the women to the hospital and Amanda, Jocelyn, and Gina were released the next day to their grateful families. Michelle didn't have anyone at the hospital waiting on her release. It wouldn't have mattered anyways because Michelle was extremely sick. She had facial damage to her orbital bone. She had almost complete hearing loss in one ear due to the repeated blows. And she also had a severe blood infection. Doctors said if the women weren't found when they were, Michelle was at most two days away from dying. Within an hour of the women's rescue, Castro was found at a gas station where he was promptly arrested. Eventually, he would be charged with over 977 criminal acts, including aggravated murder for Michelle Knight's terminated pregnancies, 512 counts of kidnapping, 446 counts of rape, and half a dozen counts of aggravated assault. On advice of counsel and to avoid the death penalty, Ariel Castro took a plea deal. He agreed to life in prison without parole, plus 1,000 years. During the sentencing hearing, only one of his captives showed up in person. Michelle Knight gave a very moving victim impact statement, while Gina and Amanda had family members read brief statements. You took 11 years of my life away, and I have got it back. I spent 11 years in hell. Now your hell is just beginning. Small in stature, her strength seemed to fill the entire courtroom. Knight said fellow captive Gina De Jesus was her teammate 
the only good to come from so much horror, a horror she put in her own words. I cried every night. I was so alone. I worried about what would happen to me and the other girls every day. Speaking on behalf of Gina De Jesus was her cousin, Sylvia Colon, telling the court today marked the end of a dark chapter of suffering and the start of a new life. Today, we will close this chapter of our lives. Colon also spoke to Castro's family, who has known the De Jesus family for decades, saying it is Ariel they blame. To the Castro family, we are saddened that you are burdened with this horror and will unfortunately forever be tied to these atrocities. Please know that we do not hold you accountable. Most of her statement was said to the judge, but she spoke her last words to Castro himself in his family's native language. Que Dios se de su alma. May God have mercy on your soul. Amanda Berry's sister fought back tears, describing the suffering Castro had brought to their family for years. It is impossible to put into words how much it hurts. Castro himself was given the opportunity to speak, delivering a rambling, self-serving statement. Castro is a monster, and now the entire world knows it. Michelle ended her statement by telling Castro he will rot in jail and suffer the same indignities that she had to suffer. Michelle told the judge that the only thing that kept her alive was the thought of reuniting with her son. She told the judge how Castro tormented her by telling her that no one ever came looking for her. She stated the days were long and never-ending. She told the judge that the only good thing to come out of that house was her friendship with Gina. She told the judge how Gina would nurse her back to health and wouldn't allow her to die after Castro's brutal attacks. Then she spoke directly to Ariel Castro. Quote, I remember all of the times you came home talking about everyone else that did something wrong. You acted like you weren't doing anything wrong. You said, at least I didn't kill you. You took 11 years from my life, but I got my life back. I spent 11 years in hell. Now your hell is just beginning. I will overcome all that happened, but you're going to face hell for eternity. From this moment on, I am not going to let you define me or affect who I am. I will live on, but you will die a little more inside each day as you think of those 11 years and the atrocities you inflicted on us. What does God think of you hypocritically going to church each Sunday and then coming home to torture us? The death penalty would be the easy way out. You don't deserve that. We want you to spend the rest of your life in prison. I can forgive you, but I'll never forget. With God's guidance, I'll prevail and help other victims who may have suffered at the hands of another. Writing this statement gives me the strength to be a stronger woman and know that there are more good people than evil. I know there's a lot of people going through hard times, but they need someone to reach a hand for them to hold and let them know that they are being heard. After 11 years, I am being heard and it feels liberating. 
end quote. After Michelle and the family representatives gave their victim impact statements, Castro was allowed to give a statement too. For 16 long minutes, he rambled on to the court, vacillating between taking full responsibility and then minimizing his actions. He took umbrage at being called a monster and emphatically told the judge he was just a sick person in need of help. He told the judge that before he had his captives, he would self-gratify himself for hours until he passed out, as if this was proof of his need for hostages. He even had the audacity to complain to the judge about some of the hurtful words spoken by the DeJesus family he felt were uncalled for. Then he lied to the judge. He told him that he went to high school with Gina's father and that he never would have taken her had he known how young she was or that she was his friend's daughter. But we know both of those things are a lie. He initially believed Michelle Knight to be 13 years old when he took her. He also confessed to Gina that he had been stalking her and planning to take her for over a year before he found his opportunity. Then Castro told the judge that he was the biggest victim of all and he needed help and understanding, but knows that he is being given jail instead. Castro acted like he was graciously going to accept prison only to help his captives heal and not because that is where he belonged. He reminded the judge that he was sick and mentally ill because of being sexually abused as a child. He also told the judge that he never abused Nilda Figueroa. He called his son a liar and stated that if anything, he was abused and battered by her. Then with utter disbelief, he told the judge that all of the sex with the women was consensual. He even had the audacity to state that most of the sex was initiated by his captives. He said that he had a problem and the only thing he did wrong was not allow them to leave. He described them as a happy family with a lot of love and harmony. He challenged the judge to speak to his daughter with Barry and confirmed he was a great father. Then he stated he knows the girls weren't damaged as evidenced by them being on TV at a rap concert. He said that was proof that Amanda Berry wasn't traumatized. He also told the judge that none of the women were virgins, as if that mitigated his sexual assaults. That was another lie, he told the judge. Then he finished by saying that they all got in the car willingly, as if that made them culpable for their own abductions. And the judge wasn't having any of it. He told Castro it was clear he wasn't taking responsibility by his egregious words to the court. He said the scope and magnitude of his crimes were unprecedented. He explained that while the 1,000 extra years was symbolic, it's also meant to send a message that he committed unspeakable violence against young girls just as they were emerging into adulthood. He stated that the women were compelling examples of resilience, of imagination, of humanity. We know Castro deprived the women of their humanity, making them live under constant threats of death. He repeatedly told them he was looking to abduct their younger replacements, and then he would kill them. 
When faced with his own deprivation of freedom, Castro lasted just 33 days. On September 3rd, 2013, he was found in his cell naked, hanging from a sheet wrapped around a window. When Castro was first held in county jail, he had been placed on suicide watch because he wasn't handling the threats of violence by other inmates very well. As a result, he requested solitary confinement for his own safety. Castro's prison medical records showed when he first arrived, he was diagnosed with mental health issues described as an adjustment disorder with depressed mood. When prison intake personnel asked him if he was suicidal, he denied that he was, stating he only pretended to be suicidal at county jail because he was afraid to be in general population. The clinician notes stated, Inmate seems fairly stable at the present time. He does not appear to be actively suicidal or self-injury behavior inclined. There are a number of reasons that he cites as reasons to live, including his religious beliefs, his family, and his children. He has no prior mental health treatment history, and there is no reported family history of suicide or salient mental illness. He appears quite narcissistic, but does not show evidence of mood, anxiety, or thought disorder. Nevertheless, due to the security and safety risk of this inmate, he will be placed on constant suicide watch more for practical than convincing reasons. In addition, due to his life sentence and high-profile nature of his crimes, he may pose some risk to his own safety and welfare, especially as the gravity of the situation begins to sink in. Castro's medical records showed over the next few days. They continued to watch and evaluate him, and he showed no signs of suicidal ideation. However, based on the nature of his crimes, prison officials felt he needed a full and complete mental health evaluation, both a mental status examination and a mental health biopsychosocial assessment was completed on Castro. During the evaluation, Castro described his initial mood as upset over the constant verbal harassment directed towards him by the other segregated inmates. Yet, he still described himself as always a happy person. He continued to deny he was suffering from depression or having feelings of self-harm. Castro seemed incredulous that the media and other inmates treated him badly. He again explained that his long-standing addiction to pornography and the mutual culpability of his victims allowed him to believe he lacked responsibility in his crimes. The evaluator stated in Castro's records that while he didn't believe he was at risk at the time for self-harm, he did believe that he could easily change if anyone challenged his sense of entitlement or fragile grandiosity. He was officially diagnosed with narcissistic personality disorder with antisocial features, including gaining pleasure from inflicting sadistic behavior on others. Castro's only real complaints were regarding the quality of the food he was given and the cleanliness of his cell. He demanded hygiene items and cleaning products and was angry when they weren't provided. One thing the guards did note is that he was constantly naked in his cell and was repeatedly told to put on clothes around female correctional officers. Castro eventually began to believe that the guards were tampering with his food, and as a result, he had lost over 10 pounds. 
Due to the notoriety of his crime, Castro was initially placed in a segregation unit that had a little more supervision. Despite him no longer being on official suicide watch, guards described Castro as both demanding and pompous. The day of Castro's suicide, he asked to be moved to a facility closer to his family and somewhere he would be given better protection from other inmates. He began to fear for his safety and refused to leave his cell even for recreation time. Castro also believed the guards were tampering with his food because one time a guard allegedly told him that his brown rice looked like a pile of shit. From this, Castro inferred someone had placed feces in his food. Life came full circle for Castro when he began keeping a journal in prison, something his captives also did while under his control and custody. Something they did to leave a record of the inhumanity perpetrated against them in case they didn't survive. In contrast, Castro's, quote, captivity, unquote, was far more generous than he ever allowed or provided to them. Castro was given regular food, medical care, human interactions, and personal agency, yet his inability to cope only served to highlight their endurance. His lack of courage can be seen in his prison journal entries. His outrage over his far more humane treatment showed an incredible lack of self-awareness and a remarkable level of self-absorption. Each of his journal entries dripped with self-entitlement. On August 10th, just a few days after his arrival, he made notations about a guard who was rude to him. He couldn't fathom anyone would have cause to treat him with anything other than deference and respect. He acted more like he was a hotel guest, complaining about the accommodations, rather than a prisoner removed from society because of his own criminality. In some of his entries, it shows he still didn't grasp the seriousness of his actions. On August 13th, he wrote that he thought someone tampered with his food, giving him heart palpitations. His medical records backed this up. However, it was just a panic attack. It was telling that his coping skills for life in captivity were spiraling downward. A few days later, he complained to a guard about the lack of cleanliness in his cell. He also asked for clean linen and underwear. He wrote, quote, Still, nothing gets done. I don't know if I can take this neglect anymore in the way I'm being treated. I'm getting frustrated. I will not take this kind of treatment much longer if this place treats me this way. I can only imagine what things would be like at my parent institution. I feel as though I'm being pushed over the edge one day at a time. It's important to note that while Castro was in prison, it wasn't going to be his final destination. The correctional system was still determining the best place to house him. Of course, Castro had thoughts on this and treated it more like a job transfer than a prison transfer. He continued to make demands that he be moved closer to his family so that he could have regular contact. The irony that he kept three innocent women as sex slaves and locked them away from their families for over a decade was completely lost on him. Yet, the thought of being imprisoned without his own family seemed outrageous to him.
His captives also wrote in their journals daily, often documenting the atrocities committed against them. Amanda Berry devised a secret code where she was able to keep track of the number of daily rapes. Each day, she would write down a 3x or 4x to document his assaults. She did this hoping someday someone would find a record of his crimes. Castro didn't seem to be as clever in his journal. His thoughts and writings were still his own. He wrote a four-page journal entry entitled A Day in the Life of a Prisoner with the same hopes as Amanda Berry that someone would read it and do something about the crimes he felt were being committed against him. Ironic, right? Castro wrote, I brush my teeth and go back to bed, get up, lay down, get up, lay down. This goes on all day. I pace in my cell, meditate, stare at the walls as I daydream a lot. Some of his entries talked about his plans for the future, and others showed his inability to adapt to life in captivity. In one entry, he wrote, As for me, I will never see the light at the end of the tunnel, but that's all right. It's what I chose. I have lots of time on my hands now to think and read, write, exercise. I want to make a bigger effort to try to commit to God. I wonder how warm the cell will be in the winter, for I'm very sensitive to cold drafts. It literally drives me under the covers. I also get depressed and I don't want to do anything but just lay here. I guess we'll just have to wait and see when I get to that bridge. Most of the guards here are okay, but the younger ones don't take their job seriously or they are rude to me for no apparent reason. Sometimes I drift into a negative thought. I check myself and I try harder not to go there. In short, Castro couldn't handle one one hundredth of the indignities he perpetrated against his victims. While his captives were raped and brutalized daily, he couldn't handle the thought of being cold or living in an unclean environment. While they were chained to a four-foot rusty chain for a decade, he couldn't handle the limitations of pacing or meditating in his own cell. Right after Castro's suicide, there was speculation that he died accidentally from autoerotic asphyxiation, which is the intentional restriction of oxygen to the brain for the purpose of sexual arousal. The report written after his suicide dispels this rumor. Before hanging himself with his bedsheet, Castro had prepared a makeshift shrine on the way to meet his maker. In true narcissistic fashion, he believed he was going to a better place where he would be welcomed with open arms. He had propped up a Bible left open to chapter 2 and 3 of the Gospel of John. More than likely, Castro was focused on chapter 3, which explains one of the main tenets of Christianity. It shows that God is not a punishing God, and Jesus came into the world so that mankind would know his loving and forgiving nature. It explains how anyone, regardless of their sin, can be born again and embraced into the kingdom of God. So in plain speak, Castro believed he found a means of escape from his imprisonment. In addition to the Bible, Castro also carefully arranged photographs of his family and a written sheet of his favorite Bible verses, all seemingly assembled in preparation for death. There is actually a statistic for suicide in prison. It's more common in prisoners with life sentences. The report on his death concluded that, quote, 
Based upon the fact that this inmate was going to remain in prison for the rest of his natural life under the probability of continued perceived harassment and threats to his safety, his death was not predictable on September 3, 2013, but his suicide was not surprising and perhaps inevitable." End quote. The average time served by an inmate prior to suicide is 65 months. Castro lasted just 33 days. The prosecutor on Castro's case upon learning of his suicide called him a coward. He said he couldn't take for a month a small portion of what he had dished out for more than a decade to his victims. It's been almost nine years since the women held in Castro's House of Horrors escaped. In that time, they have rebuilt their lives, found their purposes, and are making a difference in their own communities. Today, Amanda Berry is 36 years old and hosts a local segment on the Fox 8 News that highlights missing people. Gina DeJesus is 32 years old now, and she, along with her cousin, have founded an organization called the Cleveland Family Center for Missing Children and Adults. It's located in the same neighborhood where she was held captive for nine years. She knows firsthand how important support is for the family of missing people and encourages them to reach out to her organization. Michelle Knight is 41 years old now and has changed her name to Lily Rose Lee. She said it represents a new beginning of peace, love, and healing. She was never able to reunite with the little boy she loved with all of her heart and who kept her spirit alive. He was eventually adopted by his foster family who have chosen not to share the details of his birth mother with him. Although Joey's family had given her photos of her son over the years, she remains hopeful that someday he will seek her out and they will have a long anticipated reunion. He is 22 years old now and a grown man. Lily, as she is now known, has gone on to get married to a man who has taught her what it finally feels like to be loved. Together, they live in Florida where she rescues animals and volunteers at an exotic bird sanctuary. She is also a twice published New York Times bestselling international author. Despite Castro's best efforts to break down his captives, they proved that the human condition and their will to survive allowed them to triumph over his evil. That is our episode for this week and the conclusion to this horrific story. Let us know on social media what you think about this case. Thank you all so much for listening. We'll see you next week. Crime Salad is a Weird Salad production. Are you kidding me? That was perfect.